Welcome to the Seek Wilderness Podcast, a platform for outdoor adventures and storytelling, for gaining basic knowledge of hunting, fishing, and woodsmanship. A place to find inspiration to go do epic stuff this week. Seek Wilderness. All right, we are live. Welcome back to the Seek Wilderness Podcast. <laughs> he just cut off. <laughs> he must have hit a button or something. That's fantastic. <laughs> Do you see him, Dieter? No, he dropped off. There he is. <laughs> what happened? <laughs> what happened there? Would you get a little too excited, Todd? Was that me that dropped off? Or the whole thing? Okay. Yeah, man. I didn't touch no, let's him. Keep it all. This is this, this is great for TV, man. Is it? How you, okay. do, how, how you doing? I'm doing good, man. Good. How's your weekend going? Uh, busy, busy being, you know, worship pastor. We had an event Saturday. We're recording this on Palm Sunday. Mm-hmm. I got two more events and then Easter. So this is like a b- very busy time of year, but I'm looking forward to this conversation, this, uh, you know, next hour or whatever it is just to kind of escape what's been going on. But I mean, and all it's good. I got an opportunity to get out, shoot the bow. Some got the, uh, the ARD sighted in nicely, hitting dimes. That was actually really, really easy. Like I was a little worried about taking it off one bow, putting on another bow, uh, but but no problems. And Tim, out of adjustable red dot, was very helpful and uh, set me up straight with all, with everything that I needed and all. So I saw you got out and did some uh, some scouting. Yeah, hit some some wildlife management areas this morning with the dog. It's old Archie nice. Bunker. Nice, nice. Yeah. Good deal. So this week is something that I've been waiting a long, long time with. Um, as a matter of fact, when we were talking about starting a podcast before I was ever starting, you know, thinking about doing a podcast and, and yeah. you and I got it going, I always said, I got to get Dieter on. I got to get Dieter on. So Dieter Cocken is live with us today. And Dieter, thank you for joining us, man. Why don't you go ahead and tell people that maybe possibly have been living under a rock the last five or six years and um you know give a little bit of your background where you're from what you do and all the good stuff that makes up the killer that you are man sure yeah glad uh glad to be here thanks for having me mm-hmm. so i i grew up in madison wisconsin so growing up i played hockey a lot and i obviously i got into fishing and hunting and then i met a guy i was playing hockey with in high school and he was uh nice enough to bring me along with his family. And that's where I got my bow hunting start was probably, that would have been like the late eighties. And that was just kind of grinding it out on public land. Just, it was good. Cause I had the freedom to do whatever the heck I wanted. I mean, I was picking my own trees. It didn't have any success, but you know, it was kind of learning the land, what worked, what didn't work. And then after high school, I went to Northern Michigan University where I played hockey up there and got a taste of uh, UP deer hunting and kind of the culture surrounding it in Michigan, which is a real special thing to, despite the kind of the bad reputation that I think Michigan hunting gets. So I hunted when I was in college, when I could get away, we usually had Sundays off and I was able to get out and do some bow hunting. And then over Christmas break, when I'd returned back to to Madison, then I'd usually, you know, I'd hit the, I'd hit the woods for probably a week solid. I should have probably been on the ice, but I was, I was, I was in the wood chasing, chasing deer. And, uh, Mm -hmm. after college, 
I was fortunate enough, I played 10 years professionally, and that kind of brought me all over the United States where I was mostly in the minors. I played some in the NHL, but a lot of the teams were on the East Coast, so I bow hunted uh, Kentucky, Massachusetts, New York, Connecticut, and then I was in Maine for a brief bit, but I didn't really hunt there a whole lot. But I got to see a lot of different a lot of different uh, environments kind of had uh, forced me to be well-rounded and forced me early on to be mobile just because I didn't know if I'd get traded or called up. I couldn't have tree stands in presets. I pretty much had to run and gun and find spots quickly and, and adapt, and that kind of just shaped how I became as a bow hunter. And after playing professional hockey, I entered the – Michigan State Police Recruit School, and I ended up getting stationed up in the UP, and I've been a trooper for 15 years, and then for the last six years, I've been in the canine unit, so that's kind of opened my eyes to a lot of different things with, with odor and changed how I hunted and how I think there's certain times you can maybe take advantage of their sense of smell compared to you know it almost made me more aggressive rather than you'd think it'd be the opposite effect where if you learned how sensitive their nose will noses were and how capable that that uh sense was for them that would kind of get you going in the opposite direction where you didn't think you'd be able to get away with anything but it kind of taught me that there were different elements to you know their sense of smell that that kind of take advantage of it as hunters and a lot of that was that no matter how good they are at detecting odor, they're going to have to solve a problem. It becomes a problem solving and you can make the problem really easy for them to solve, or you can make the problem extremely difficult for them to figure out. And if you make it difficult, then you can kind of get away with more than you think you might be able to. So, so what, what would that, um, what would that look like? I'm curious, like how would you create a problem? Well, the, the simplest problem for them to solve would be a person on the ground directly upwind. So right. okay. at a level that they can detect very easily. And they they judge distance by odor concentration. So they'll make a decision how far away they think you are to whether or not they think you're in trouble. When I was training the dogs, when I started putting people in trees, especially the first couple times a dog encounters that, they're they're slow to figure out the problem. They detect the odor, but it, they'll be running 50 yards in that direction, 50 yards in that, and keep coming back to it till they can figure out what the heck's going on. And eventually they figure it out and they'll look up into the tree. And that's the first time. Once they do it one time, they're, they can solve it a lot quicker in the, in right. the future. So an elevated, an elevated find is the most difficult thing for, for either a dog or a deer to get an accurate distance measurement for how far away they think that person is. So if you're, I mean, you can see this with most of the guys who think that you can beat a dog and I don't think you can beat a dog or a deer's nose, but the guys who think you can beat it, they happen to be pretty high in trees. Mm -hmm. So the heights probably one of the biggest factors in, in, the results they're seeing because at, at a certain height if you go high enough the odor will never hit 
the animal on the ground, whether it's a, it's a dog or a deer. I mean, hmm. so that's, there's a benefit of height. And then also the thing with height, I saw some unique things where the dog, once you put a person in a tree at a certain height, they'd look for things at that height, but they'd sometimes miss things lower or higher than the height that they normally see things. Cause I've had, I've had people hiding on the ground where whatever was happening with the wind or the odor, where the dog was getting something that it recognized from before. And it thought the person was a tree in the tree and it would look up, you know, 12, 15 feet in the tree and the dogs are trained to bark when they find the person. So the dog's looking up into the tree and barking, thinking the person's up there, but the person's on the ground. So they'll, hmm. they'll cheat the system and look at, look at different heights. And I think that's where, People are having more success lower than you would think because mm. the deer, the deer don't learn. They don't watch podcasts. They don't learn talking to other deers. They only, they only learn from their own personal experiences. So mm -hmm. if they've seen people on field edge in maple trees, they're going to look at every maple tree in a field edge. But if there's a little scrubby crappy tree that they've never, ever seen someone in, they're going to bypass that and look to the areas where they think pipe people might be. So when people start hunting in that five to 10 foot range, normally those are trees that other people aren't hunting in. So mm -hmm. I think there's a benefit to doing things different than everybody else, obviously. And you can get away with, with different things at different heights and kind of mixing up what you, what you do based on what the deer have learned in the past, because I think that, you know, they're going to, they're going to make their decisions based on their life experience and a pressured yeah. deer has had more kind of negative life experiences that it's learned from than you know, a deer that hasn't had any, any consequence for any of the mistakes it's made. So those deer are going to be more alert in situations where they've, they've been countered trouble in the past, which I think, you know, I don't hunt over bait, but people who have ever hunted over bait know how alert that deer is. And that's right. just a situation where they're at the top of their game. They've had negative encounters in this situation in the past, and they're going to scope out every single tree to make sure it's clear compared to if you encountered that deer in a totally different area, it's going to act much more naturally and not be doing the same things that it does when it reaches that, that destination area. Man, that's some really, really good information right there. That's, you don't hear a lot of people talk about it and they probably can't talk about it. Like you can talk about it, you know, being what your field is and, and, and the experience you have with critters that are, are using their noses to identify things. That's huge. And that, that really puts a lot of, um, I don't know, necessarily closure or proof to a lot of guys that are hunting low right now. Um, I think though, I, I think it could be eventually if everybody starts hunting at 10 feet, like you, you're saying they're, the deer are going to get the, 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 the background and, and uh, the, the 10 foot, uh, you know, maybe 12 foot or lower, they're going to start looking there right now. They're used to looking at 16 to 18 to 20 feet. Just, Does that make sense? Does that make sense? Or yeah, I think so. I mean, it's just going to be based on based on their their encounters. Because I think yeah. hunters, like when you go scouting public land, you can 
probably see where there's a stand from a hundred yards away. Like that looks like an area that people hunt. That's the kind of tree that people like to hunt. That's the, and the, the deer are going to, if they encounter a person in that type of a situation, especially if they have a negative, a negative encounter, that, that event is going to be imprinted in their brain. And when we train the dogs, like when we get a dog, they have zero training. We go down to Lansing and we train the dog for 14 weeks. And when we get the dog, they don't know the sit command. They don't know this. They don't know that. And we have to train everything into the dog. And the basic dog training, if anybody's trained dogs, it's based on the principles of conditioning and positive and negative reinforcement. And that's how you train animals. And it's usually done by repetitions. And anywhere from 20 to 40 repetitions, the dog can normally learn how to do you know, a basic, a basic task. But then there's certain events that are called one-time learning and that would be similar if you know a small child touches a hot stove you know it takes one repetition to learn that so if you create a one-time learning event where if you like if you wounded a deer that event is totally imprinted in its brain and anytime it encounters anything like that it's going to be very hesitant and you know it's going to remember what it smelled at the exact time that happened, the position of its body, what type of area in the woods, and it's going to it's gonna avoid those type of situations because it doesn't know what happened. It just knows something bad happened, and my body was in this type of an environment at this time. And, and as a hunter, that can be a, extremely difficult because the deer can definitely scent discriminate where each one of us smells differently. So if, if a deer had a very negative experience with me it it'd be more difficult for me to kill that animal than a different person because Hmm. it smells any amount of odor associated with me it's going to associate that with with danger and be way more alert than if you know somebody else came in there it's still human odor but it's not it's not that one odor that all of a sudden something went burning over my over my back so, that's crazy man so so any fact like you often hear people that that buck was hunting me i mean i, I i've heard that mentioned a couple of times several times on, on different podcasts like in the situations where a hunter is just, they have that one target buck in mind and they'll put 50 60 70 100 sits towards that buck and and now now it's to the point now to where that buck has that hunter scent and is now i mean you're saying like if I went in on my first sit, which would have been this guy's 85th sit, I may have had a better chance because he's not smelling the other hunter. He's smelling a hunter, but not that hunter. I mean, that's what, I mean, that would be my theory. And that's based on interesting. The dogs can hundred percent do it. Like I can run a track through 50 people. And if he starts on the one person's odor, he's going to ignore all the other wow. people and continue tracking the one person so that the dogs can tell the difference between individual people. So, I mean, there's no doubt in my mind that the deer can do it. And if the deer, for whatever reason, are getting hounded by one particular person and one odor, or they had a very negative experience with, with that odor, then if they encounter that in the woods, they're going to be way more alert or they may, may be way more likely to turn around. And like, I'm not, I'm not messing with, with, with this guy. Cause yeah. 
Yeah. Well, my, my buddy DJ, he's a big turkey hunter. He's a big deer hunter, too. But one of his things is when he talks about turkeys, and we could throw this off of the scent thing, obviously, with turkeys. But what he'll always say is that, you know, later in the season, that turkey, he's witnessed a murder. Like he, he was with another gobbler that came into a set and, and, and knew that spot right there. And he witnessed the murder already. You know what I mean? Like he ain't coming back to that set. He, you know, it's going to be a lot harder to kill that bird. If you're, you're in the same area and you're trying to do it almost in the same setup, that bird's not coming in. He, he witnessed a murder earlier in the, in the spring and he is not coming back. Obviously that that's not uh scent and deer. It's turkeys, but along the same lines like like you said a negative effect like yeah if you're sitting on a bait pile and yep. you were a, a six pointer and you came on with a nice eight pointer and you seen the eight pointer get killed on that bait pile in, the, in that set he's witnessed a murder <laughs> like that that set is not he's not gonna you know generally gonna come back and, and with the same guy saying all that stuff he, he's seen that before and that's where we're baiting in Michigan or wherever you can do it. Like those, those younger deer are taught lessons at those bait piles where, you know, depending on the time of year and yeah, there's a lot of good deer that get killed on bait or whatever. I mean, I, as soon as I totally gave up hunting bait, my success rate went way up. And so I don't believe it's the best tactic, especially on bigger deer. Because they, they've been conditioned to that, to that environment where they know it's a dangerous situation, and it, the analogy would be like anybody who leaves their house and goes to wherever, you know, there's when you leave your driveway, you look both ways, you get onto the highway, but once you start driving on the highway, you know, you kind of space out and you start thinking about different things until you finally hit your exit that you're going to, and then all of a sudden you start paying attention again. Well. I want to hunt the deer in those in-between areas where they're not paying attention. So I don't hunt destination areas. I hunt outside of bedding, but not really right on tops. Cause so I want to get, a, I want them to be as, as kind of oblivious and not paying attention as possible. And, you know, I'll hunt a lot of just off winds and try to get, get away with different things. I mean, I do some things maybe a little bit different where, if I'm, if I'm hunting leeward ridges, I always hunt the high side. Like I blow straight over the trail. Like I'd rather take the height advantage and then use the thermals in the morning than have, mm -hmm. you know, be on the low side where they have more likely to see if that makes any sense. I always yep. mm -hmm. like height. I mean, but last year I shot my deer at 10 feet because that's, you know, those were the trees that were available and that's what needed to be done. So, I mean, I think the biggest thing you can try to be as well, is as well-rounded as you can be, especially as a public land hunter. Cause you know, you're not gonna, you're not going to be able to pick your spots like you could on private land where, you know, you, you might have a great area and you might get pushed out of there by other hunters and you have to be able to adapt and kind of, read and react from what's going on and even with the deer like we talked about how the the deer are going to learn from the lessons that we teach them well if if you're hunting the high side of the ridge and you're starting to notice that 
this deer is starting to figure out, well, your best thing you can do is hunt stuff that's completely opposite in that area. So if you had to drop down to the bottom and hunt an evening, or if you had to hunt the swamp nearby and just kind of mix it up and do completely things different because the, the deer are going to react to what you do. I think I had, I've had a couple times where I've encounters with deer in a certain area. I had one where I was up on the top of a ridge and he ended up getting downwind to me smelling me and then he ran off into the valley and I was you know able to based on the information that he provided me okay well he feels safer here he's not going to feel safe coming up here if I get the same exact wind I might as well go to where he went then hope and pray that he does the same same thing which wouldn't be very likely so the more we can do different things and you know podcasts have been awesome for information and everything but i think if you listen to enough podcasts you can realize that successful guys are killing deer in completely different ways like yeah like totally different ways and if you can take one thing from one guy and one thing from another and kind of shape your own style i mean you'd have to think the deer are walking by hundreds of trees in a day and if you can find kind of a certain style that fits you. And as soon as you kill that first good deer, it gets way easier because you just try to recreate that same exact situation. And, you know, even other states are usually the same time of year, but you know, that's kind of the challenge I think for where a lot of interest in podcasts is and a lot of guys who want to learn and you can see it on the forums, you know, for the most part, there's, guys who want to get better and you know that's kind of my goal is if i can improve every year and keep challenging myself to get better and learning learning from everybody i can and go from there i agree with that and i think being well-rounded is is something that is uh obviously most people want to do but sometimes the the bird the place or the, the conditions that they hunt doesn't um, if they stay in the same areas that they they live in or they're accustomed to, they can, they're, they're, they're like a, a one horse pony in that the fact that they, they get stuck into what has worked for them. However, as I get a little bit older, I start realizing that I only have so many places that I hunt that work exactly that way. And once you start to burn out all those places, if you want to get better and continue to get better and better and better and continue to be a killer on a normal basis, you have to make adjustments and you got to get better at the places maybe that are not quite the same that you've always been, been good with and that are familiar with you. And, and like you said, you, 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 you have to, the, the real good guys that can go anywhere and kill deer are the well-rounded guys. There's guys that are marsh guys. There's guys that are mountain guys, but there's very few guys that can do it all and be very successful in all those places. And I, I think most people should strive to be good at all those places. And, and I think uh, when you look at a place like where, where you currently live in the UP, there is, a lot of people think of the UP as um, like a very mono big woods situation. But I think when you start to break things down and you start to realize that, that wait, there's plains, there's, there's river bottoms, there's ridges, there's, there's hard scape, there's soft scape, there's, 
there's a lot of things that go on in the UP and you've been pretty successful in a lot of different places. Most of the things that I've seen you in aren't exactly the same setup. The videos that I've seen of you and, and some of the things that you shared on social media, you're not killing deer in the same exact places. You're moving things around. You're going to other states. You're going to Wisconsin a lot and, and some of these other states. And, you know, you can't think that Madison is going to be a lot like the UP. You know, I mean, there might be some little patches that are a lot like some of the patches that you, you hunt in the UP, but it's a it's a totally different thing. And, you know, th- this year here, I think, um, if, if I'm correct, you killed one, uh, a good buck. You and your brother, I think, did well in, in, in Wisconsin. Is that is that correct? Yeah, I got I got one in Wisconsin this year. And then last year was a Michigan buck and then the year before was in three states. So that kind of every, (laughs) the thing about like anybody like with a bunch of deer on the wall, it's, I mean, it's never easy. I mean, it's a freaking battle every year. It's so, it's so easy to do these podcasts and make it sound easy. Mm -hmm. And I mean, it never, it like I can have my theories and make it sound like, I got it all figured out, but I mean, if, if anything that I pride myself on, I think it's like just grinding it out. Like I'll, I'll go from the beginning to the end, if that's what it takes. And, and, you know, there's a lot of times I think where guys are going to, especially guys who haven't had success are going to lose confidence. And then, you know, whether that forces them to sleep in, the next morning or take a day off or cut their year short, you know, that's that right. There's probably the difference between them and the other guys that they think that maybe know what they're doing. Cause yeah. last, the last three Michigan bucks that I've shot were the one was December 16th. The one was December 27th and the other one was december 29th so i mean right 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 at the right at the right at the end and i mean Mm -hmm. i'm i'm fortunate enough to hunt you know quite a bit and have a supportive wife who lets me do it so i mean i'm taking two three weeks off during the rut so i mean i'm pounding it i mean it's i'm not i wish i was better at like short term you know couple day day hunts but like i've been kind of you know i can get them figured out in probably a week it's like my my kind of style i guess <laughs> but yeah well i, I well, think thing, it goes back to your is, is that you're doing you're you're being you're consistent year over year you're consistent um but i wanted to go back a little bit because something that just stuck in my mind was you you said you started to become more successful as a hunter when you decided to stop baiting and I was wondering if you could just like give us some more detail on what exactly you mean there and what that, what that looked like as well. So for, I mean, Michigan's obviously in the, in the UP, you can still bait. So it's a, it's a baiting mm-hmm. culture. So when I started with the state police, like I kind of like the first couple of years, I didn't really even hunt Michigan. Like I was like, ah, whatever, like I'll go to different States. And then, and then I was like, ah, d- there's, there's gotta be deer here. <laughs> so I mean, yeah. I started, looking around and started i was actually surprised at the the quality of deer that I actually started being able to find and 
you know, typically I'd come home from, I'd go down to Wisconsin, I'd hunt for a couple weeks, you know, I'd be perfectly happy not seeing deer for two days and then coming, you know, then able to shoot one on the third day or whatever. And then you come back to Michigan and for whatever reason you feel like you needed to bait, you had to bait. And if you didn't bait, then you weren't going to see anything. Yeah. And I was having, you know, it wasn't even worth hunting for me because I wasn't seeing anything I wanted to shoot over bait. But then as soon as the first year I stopped baiting, like I, I was like, okay, I'm going to do what I do in other States. I'm just going to do it in Michigan. I don't care anymore. Like, I'm just going to do it this way, see what happens. So then I went into basically just hunting scrapes. Like that was for, for where I'm at, that was kind of the only predictable movement I could have. I mean, there's, there's zero ag. I think the closest ag to most of the places I'm hunting is probably a hundred miles away. So there's no ag. So I was like, well, I'll just start hunting scrapes. And I was running cameras on scrapes. And I remember I was having, and it was actually a particularly good year where I, I was seeing, I could see as many as eight bucks in a day sitting all day and they'd mm -hmm. just be running these scrape lines and, you know, seeing good bucks and I was, and just from there started building on that, building on, you know, what did I started to to learn from the train? Because the train was totally different than, you know, ag or anything like that. It was kind of, you know, I was listening to other guys who are big scrape hunters. You know, I talked to Troy Potter on the phone and other guys who are hunting a lot of scrapes and, you know, kind of taking what they were they were saying and combining it with what I was seeing because my scrapes were totally different than the ones that they were describing and, you know, kind of just ended up evolving in kind of a, a system to kind of locate these, locate these deers on deer on scrapes and kind of, you know, mostly shooting them during the rut. And then recently I've kind of figured out how to take that into the, into the late season. And then next year, my plan is I want to get, I want to get better and dedicate more time to the first part of October and start killing deer at that point rather than, than waiting for November, December. Yeah, that, that's a good deal. So I think w w your mindset goes back to your personality. So first of all, you're a goalie. I mean, and you take it, you took it to basically as high as you can go, especially if you were playing in the NHL, you're, you took it to, to the, you know, you're, you're probably one or two levels away from being like uh, a legendary athlete. You know what I mean? You, you, you didn't make it to obviously make it to the NHL hall of fame. So I mean, that, that's what could be, a, you know, a little bit higher than where you, where you took it. You took it as high as you could. Most people could ever have taken it. But when you, you look at like your home state and your home turf um, and you, maybe you didn't get you know, your plan didn't quite work out and maybe you, you had some opportunities, but they just didn't make it all the way to where you got an arrow and a deer earlier in the season. I mean, that's basically like getting down by a couple of soft goals early in the game, but you still got to fight. You can't sit there and just roll over because you, you went down by a couple of goals. You got to fight through it. You got to fight through it. You got to have your team play with you. You got, you got to put your plan together and just keep doing what the coach is telling you to do and, and just do your part. That's all you can do is your part. And, when you are killing the deer in December and, and you, they're probably deer that you were aware of, 
you know, maybe you had sheds off them or maybe, you, you, you know, you, you had them pretty well marked by their, their tracks on roads and, and however trail cameras or whatever you stuck to your game. And I think that goes back to your personality a lot. And when you talk about um, coming back to the UP and, you know, you felt like maybe I, earlier in your, in your uh, hunting, you know, career, you, you thought like, well, you know, the mindset in the UP is if I don't have something on my bait pile on a trail camera, I really don't have any deer around. There is no big bucks in the UP, but you, anybody that can take a look at the upper peninsula and think that there's no big bucks in the UP are completely brainwashed by that type of mentality. There is absolutely deer that are making it to five and six and seven and eight and nine years old. There's bucks that are making it up there. No matter how bad the winters are, there's bucks that are making it. No matter how much a pack of wolves or a couple of packs of wolves are crossing over in their, in their three day cycle in, in their area, they're making it. They're, they're adapting to the area and, and they're, able to live and survive up there you can't take a landmass that big and think that there's no deer that are making it they may not be coming to your bait piles out there 100 100 yards off the road and on your trail that you got pounded back and forth to your your ladder stand and if you take that as your 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 what what is available in the up you are completely losing you've lost your mind to think that there's not bucks that can't get up up to that age class up there. So for someone like you, I think the, probably the hardest part for you, Dieter is, is finding the age class or the class of deer that you're looking for. Let, let's maybe take a step back and, and take a look at what you're doing to find those deer and those areas. And there's probably some areas that can, can continue to produce for you once you find them. But what, what is your process of trying to find that age class of a deer or the, the deer that you want to, you would like to put your tag on. So right now it's evolved to like, I, I have some areas like you, like you said, that are good. And then I'll run cameras. Like if I can run cameras and get velvet pictures on, most of those are on like year old mineral sites. Like we can't, can't put mineral down in the summer, but if you put it down the year before, it's still going to, you're going to still get the same benefit for your pictures. So I'll run those cameras on minerals. And then usually right when they start going to Hardhorn, then I'll transition all my cameras. Like when I start going to, I'll usually go to like North Dakota or Kentucky or somewhere in September. So I'll transition all my pictures or all my cameras onto scrapes in September. And then Typically, just because of time and being busy doing other stuff, like I wasn't hunting that much early in October. So those mm -hmm. probably sit until I come back from whatever state I was hunting, you know, the last part of October, first part of November. And then I, you know, come back from Wisconsin and then check all the, check all those cameras on scrapes. And the biggest thing about the scrapes were that I started to realize that you know, they're, the scrapes are almost, well, they are way more important for hunting up here than they are in like states where there's just scrapes everywhere. Cause there's not that many scrapes. Like I can, we still have three feet of snow, so I can't scout now, but I mean, I could put 10 miles on walking and if I find one good scrape, I'm happy. There's just not that many of them. So when you find one, it's, it's going to be important. And if it's in an area that that you have some kind of advantage, then, you know, those are the, 
the money maker spots, but you could, there's, there's days and weeks where you'll get a, you'll get pictures of every single good buck, you, you know, in one day or over a week period. And then, you know, they usually, they seem to be very nomadic where they'll, they'll be there and then they'll disappear for a few days. So it's different hunting to where I'm very mobile, but a good spot's a good spot, whether or not you sat there the day before. Mm-hmm. Up there, it it almost feels like if you don't see, you know, the deer for three, four days, like your chances sometimes are, are getting better. Like if you're not getting them on any of your cameras in that whole area, you know he's gone. So it's like, well, if I can minimize my impact getting in and out, if I can, if I can hunt like a, you know, an A spot where, you know, I'm not going to educate him. And if you're there at the right time, then he's going to come back. And, you know, the weather has a lot to do with it. You know, if I can get a 25 mile an hour wind with the snow in my face, it's go time. Cause for whatever reason, that's when they, when they like to start covering ground mm-hmm. and it, learn it. You learn every year. I mean, cause that's the biggest thing. Like my, the big wood stuff up here is big. So, I mean, I have like five different areas that are at least 50,000 acres a piece. So, I mean, you basically look at the map and see what kind of fits your style, what you find interesting, go in there and just, you got to narrow it down to, you know, 40 to a hundred acre sections and concentrate from there. You can't, you can't tackle 50,000 acres. You have to find, Something that's interesting, and for me, it's usually if I can get to areas with water, it's just way easier to read sign. And it, the trees that they like to rub on grow in those areas. It's easier to read tracks, easier with scrapes, and just to find the stuff that makes sense in, in my mind when I'm, when I'm scouting. And mm-hmm. that it's not where I'm at, it's not flat which I don't like flat stuff either, which is a lot of like the Eastern UP and stuff like that. So we have, we have rolling Hills and, you know, some areas are even called mountains or whatever. I mean, they're not huge or anything, but you know, there's topography and different things to work with and different things to take advantage for us from, you know, like thermals and predicting where, where they might bed and stuff like that. It's way easier when you have topography than, than flat stuff. I agree. Yep. So, so, so are you finding, are you finding like, uh, like the, the, you know, I hunt a lot of marshes down here, saltwater marshes and they're pretty expansive. Um, but one of the things that I'm finding compared to like a farmland deer or what, what not like farmland deer, you, you can predict beds. You can predict that scrape that they're hitting. You can predict food pretty well because they're in small, even though it's a big, huge area, like say there's a hundred acres of crops and there's only some strips of woods around there. Maybe uh, on, on the backside of it drops down to a creek and there's a creek that is like a an area that can, you can, they can move along that creek at night or whatever in between a, a bunch of different farms or whatever. It's pretty predictable. But one of the things I'm finding in, in like marshes and what I've always kind of found in the UP is deer on more of a, like a cycle and uh, like a three to five day cycle to, to come to those areas. Is that, is that something that you're finding up there too? 
Yeah, I mean, talking with the old timers and just for whatever it's in my mind is like an eight day cycle. Eight day cycle? Okay. Like big loops and like I I have no idea where they bed. Mm -hmm. Like I think they just, they're nomadic bedding. I don't know if that's the wolves or what they do. So... And there's not the, like that, like you said, like farm, farm country. I mean, once you've hunted it for a while, it, it's really easy to, to, and to know where the deer are and what, what they're doing compared to like the big, I think that's why the big woods thing is so simple. Cause, cause people want to know where they bed and want to know where they're feeding. And you don't know either of those things. Right. You have to, I mean, it can, it can change and they browse way more than you think they do. So the only thing that I can predict movement is like really good scrapes. So that that's, that's, that's what I key in on. And, you know, we have acorns and the acorns can be good. And if you're lucky enough to find an isolated apple tree, you can get it done early. But I think the hardest thing about big woods is confidence. Cause I think confidence kills more deer than anything. Like if you're confident and if you're confident and you have like average spots, you'll be way more successful than a guy with really good spots who has no confidence. Cause hmm. when you're confident, you get up in the morning, you make your way to your tree with a purpose. You're not sloppy getting into your tree. When you're in your tree, you're paying attention. You're not on your phone so that when you do finally get a chance, you can, you can take advantage of it. So, you know, no matter what you're doing, if you made up your mind yesterday that you're going to do this, you might as well have confidence while you're doing it. Like if you make the decision that you're going to change your plan, then that's fine. Then have confidence in your change. But mm -hmm. you're going to be in a, if you're going to be in a tree thinking, what the hell am I doing here? You know, or it's not worth getting up in the morning, then your success rate will go down in a hurry. So I agree Todd, with that. Todd and I are heading, heading to the UP. This will be my first experience, really my first experience in big woods and in the UP. Um, our plan is to get there for the opener. Oh, in October. Well, yeah. yeah. And I think what do we have? Six days, five or six yeah, days. Six to, days. To try to get something done. Yeah. So, we got two days of scouting and then six days on. So hopefully we'll hit them on that cycle. Yeah. <laughs> as they, as they come through. October, October is really hard in big wood. Like, unless you figure out where they're, I mean, to kill deer in October, you have to know where they're, where they're feet, where they are. Like that's yeah. the thing that matters. So, I mean, if you could, for me, like for me, so my plan next year, so I'm going to, I found a couple places that have some egg related to them. They'll end up looking around and then apple trees and oak trees and kind of taking what I've learned from, from late season stuff. Cause the late season stuff's been all oak tree related kind of pointing that at uh, getting it done in October. Cause I'd love to, I'd love to kill one in October and then be able to go to a different state. So, so, so one of the things um, I saw one of the videos that you did with Lone Wolf custom gear for Lone Wolf custom gear. And <clears throat> I wanted to, to kind of ask you, I mean, you mentioned earlier that, your only option because, you know, being um, 
playing hockey and being in the minors could get called up or traded or whatever the case may be at any moment. Like you were forced to be, to be mobile. Uh, what, what time of year was that? Like meaning when did you start being mobile and then how that transition also into like the, the partnership that you have with Lone Wolf custom gear? Like, do you know what I'm saying? Yeah, no, I, I know exactly. So when I was younger, I was, super secretive and i think like a lot of people and then it just it with hunting it just it hit a point where i wanted to be a part of something like i wanted to be part of a team again and i yeah, yeah. have that and then you'd go on a forum or whatever and it, it'd be like there's like way too many people to be like you didn't feel like you're part of like something so i was like okay well i want to get involved with some companies because Cause I want to be part of a group of guys who are hunting like me or doing it like me and going back to like my mobile growth as a mobile hunter. So, I mean, early on it was just, you know, junk tree stands on your back. And then in like 2005, I read John Eberhardt's book. So I've been hunting out of a saddle since 2005. And then in like 2007, I bought the original lone wolf assassin, Battle platform so the old school one so i hunted off that for like 10 years so that was basically my setup for 10 years was an old school trophy line saddle and the lone wolf ambush platform and then mobile hunting started to get real popular i think it was probably you know a couple years after lone wolf custom gear kind of had their relaunch and was coming out with that stuff mm -hmm. and i had i had a facebook page that was it was a fake name to begin with because I had no intention of using it. And then that thing spiraled out of control because I started posting stuff under this fake name. <laughs> and then he kind of got his own identity. <laughs> and I started reaching out to a couple companies. And Lone Wolf was like one of the first ones. I reached out to Justin Hollinsworth. And I think I just hit it perfect to where like nobody i don't know if they're really accepting people or if they're just starting to take like pro staff guys or whatever yeah. then i got accepted with them and that that's been a great relationship for me i mean not to name drop but just right. <laughs> i mean i talked to andre on the phone yesterday i saw cody last weekend the other guy yeah. the team it's a good group of guys they have gatherings it kind of it filled that void that got left for me when i quit playing, playing hockey mm -hmm. in the hunting space at least where it was you know i'm not as interested in being as so secretive because for me personally there's just more of a benefit to being part of a group and that's yeah. kind of how i got involved with with that with them and that's really the only company that uh i really you know got involved with i wasn't you know, I don't, I wasn't looking to be a part of 10 different companies. I just wanted right. you know, be a part of a group. And, and I think I answered your question, but no, you, you did. I want, I wanted to know like when, when it was where you started like really getting into the mobile and you, you mentioned that it was early 2000. And then I, I think it was around 2017, 2018, the partnership happened with Lone Wolf Custom somewhere around there it's gotten so much easier like for guys coming into the mobile world now i mean back oh, yeah. in the day for whether or not this was was legal but i mean that it was the screwing steps and 
all that. It was a climber. It was a climber step yeah, for me. Climbing. I mean, I mean, you know, early two thousand. Threw in steps or climbing up limbs, and then it was, yep. you know, the full length lone wolves. And you know, the first couple times you hang and hunt is a total freaking nightmare. Yep. So you figure out <laughs> till you figure out your system, and then now with how well stuff is integrating, and you know, currently I'm running the the ambush platform, and then they're. Me too. Well, they're double sticks and just, I mean, weight wise, I mean, it's not even inconvenient now to right. set up and take down. And, and that's kind of, that's where it's evolved for me. And as soon as you start being really mobile, like, especially up here, like I've, I've always went back and forth with baiting and whether or not it'd be good for me or bad for me if they banned it up here. But the fact that you can do it up here, it, it limits basically my competition to where they're going to have fixed stands. They're going to have bait. I'm going to be able to figure out where everybody else is pretty easily. And if I'm doing something, something else, there's going to be, you know, advantages in my favor. Yep. So just being the, the deer don't know how to deal with a mobile hunter up here just yet. I don't think, you know, they're, they've got the, the bait piles and the fixed stuff figured out but if you're bumping around and jumping around i mean you can really catch them off guard and and i was shocked at like the worst thing about hunting michigan especially over bait was like you're it was like you're hunting a totally different animal than any other state like it was just like there's they'd act so unnatural and they were so keyed into their surroundings and you couldn't get away with basically any movement or any odor that those would be blown and everything. But as soon as you stop hunting bait and hunting, you know, the same place, then all of a sudden you're dealing with deer acting normal again. And it was a totally different world where, you know, the does would act normal. The bucks would just walk by like, yeah. like normal and compared to, you know, them hitting the brakes and staring around and stomping their big feet for, 20 minutes before they decide to come in. Yeah. I think it's the same here in Jersey. Don't, wouldn't you say Todd? I mean, as far as like using it to a, a non, a non baiter <laughs> using people who bait to, to their advantage. Yeah, definitely. I mean, today I walked some, some land and, and a wildlife management area here this, this morning with the dog and, and I walked, I think it was about 700 yards on a transition between like a holly small little holly ridge it dropped down into a creek bottom and i figured i'd just walk the transition it, it was a spot that looked like it was would be a a good spot i could get away from people and literally in 700 yards there was like 22 tree stands all ladder stands guys had you know four lanes cut out right to the ground around around their ladder stands and got to be honest with you in the 700 yards that i walked on my track um, I didn't see one scrape or one rub. Now I know those guys are probably killing deer over those things, but yeah. there was no bucks that were leaving any sign. You know, I mean, they totally changed the way deer, you know, operate along that trans, and that should have been a really hot transition. But mm. it is what it is. I wasted a morning this morning in there, but I won't waste that time in in October. So I dropped the pins on every one of those things, and I know where where to and where not to go. You know, so exactly. that's yeah. that's just the way it is. Yeah, because we're at least blessed up here that we don't have to deal with the population. Yes, so you can you can fairly easily 
get to areas where nobody else is. And it's just a matter of how hard you want to work for how far you're going to get. So, I mean, I, I love hunting the UP because if you do find a year, you could, or if you do find a deer, you can follow him for your heart's content. Like you could hunt him to the ends of the earth. It felt like, like you, Wow. You know, go anywhere, do anything, wouldn't run into fence lines, don't run into other people. Like, compared to other really? states, it's just a pain in the butt, like, running into different yeah. property lines. I mean, you can, you can, you can go up here. You can, if you find good sign, if you get eyes on one, I mean, you can, you could chase, 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 chase. Yeah. Look, around here, we have to use our mapping really like big time as far as borders and stuff like that because we have to know you know we could be 20 yards into somebody else's property you know what i mean and before you know it so you really really got to know your borders so you got to have a, a, a mapping system in the up john one, one of the things you'll see up there is it doesn't really make a difference you don't really need a map i mean you need mapping to drop pins and, and you know what i mean for your scouting and stuff like that but as far as borders and state property and it, it's not nothing like what, you, what you're used to you know what i mean wow. it's you you can cut yourself loose if you go down a dirt road a, a two rut road or whatever it's it's state land man you know what i mean like if a guy doesn't want you on there there's a camp at the end of the road or something like that he'll have a gate up or he'll have it marked off you know what i mean yeah. and if he doesn't have it marked off then he doesn't care if you go in there you know that's just the way the up is i think it's 91 percent public land is that is that pretty close Dieter? I think it's close to 80. So I think it's like 80? There's okay. 10 million acres in the UP and yeah. probably Jeez. 80% of it. Yeah. And you can go, which is, it's, it's liberating, but I mean, it's challenging at the same time, lower deer densities. Yeah. You know, no ag. I mean, the, the Southern part of the state, like where I, I think you probably are going to be going, you know, there might be a little bit more ag, Compared to like the north and along Lake Superior, there's no, we'll be along lakes, we'll be by Lake Superior. Yeah. All right. I have this image that Dieter and like one other, one other trooper are just driving up and down this one road in the UP, basically, <laughs> their entire shift. There's like, two highways, so. Yeah, <laughs> you're, you're you're on forty one or two, pretty. Much. Yeah, that's it. Yep. If you if you don't think the Dieter's got a set of binoculars in his squad car, you're crazy. I guarantee the man's got a set of binoculars. But it's all for just for state work. I I, uh, I get that. So. Yeah, 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 yeah. So 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 the other thing you mentioned, like if you're willing to put in the work and and, and put in the effort as far as going going in deep, and we we do want to we're that 50 something, 55 minutes here. So we, we do want to talk about, um, the electric bike, your, your, your company there. So this is, this is your opportunity to, to, uh, tell us all about it. Yeah. Tell us how you got into it too. And what made you think yeah. of, of running them and, 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 you know, and that. So, yeah, I mean, I, I think like every kid, I mean, you grew up on our bike, we're biking all over the pay, place. So, I mean, I had a bike my whole life and then, my father-in-law, he was actually a Trek dealer and he was kind of building bikes for, he rented them at, out of the Porcupine Mountains up uh, in the northern UP there. Yep. So I got to know kind of bikes through him and then it was probably four years ago, 
I started using a fat bike for, for biking. And right away that first year I was using that, I, you know, I shot a really good buck that had triple bases and, you know, I wouldn't have, I wouldn't have got where I was going. It was just too much work without the bike. So right away I saw where the bikes, there was a benefit. And then I started researching the electric bikes and, you know, I wanted something that was high quality and I was looking at, you know, the big, the big names in the, the business, the big three Rambo, quiet cat, Baku, and just looking at the costs. And I was like, what the heck? I mean, what, what's making these? Cause I knew bike bikes and bike parts. And it's like, well, what the heck's on this bike that makes it so much better. So then I was researching the motors and the batteries. And my plan was just to build one my myself where you can take a mid drive motor and put it onto a fat bike and get a battery and just do the whole thing yourself. And through that kind of research process, I got tied in with a couple different companies that were, they're basically the companies that supply the, the big three in the industry. So they're giving those guys all the parts. They're actually assembling all the bikes and shipping them over here. Cause I mean, I don't think any of those companies really build bikes. They just import bikes and, and resell them. Mm. So through that process, I learned that I could get a bike that was kind of close, a fully completed bike that was kind of close to what I wanted through these companies. And then I could just take that bike, rip it down, make it better and kind of make it suited for hunters where I could offer a product that was very similar to what they could get from one of those big name companies for probably $2,000 less. Mm -hmm. So that's what I'm building right now. I'm building mid drive e-bikes just cause mid drives. I don't think anybody will really argue. Those are the bikes that are going to climb the, the steepest Hills and hunters aren't interested in pedaling and getting sweaty. So I wanted bikes that can climb Hills that had high quality batteries. So you don't, start your house on fire. So, so all the batteries are certified and tested to where they're, they're quality products. And, and those are the, those are the bikes that I've kind of marketed for hunters and I've kind of taken it to a new level where I'm kind of doing some things that are, that are pretty unique where I offer two different bikes that are single speed bikes. So they have no derailleur guys are constantly ripping derailleurs off on tree branches or corn cobs or whatever. So they're bikes with only one gear, but that one gear will climb any hill you need it to. And the max speed is about 16 miles per hour. Cause the first batch of bikes I sold guys weren't shifting them. They were just leaving them in that one gear anyway. Well, so I was, well, why do we need all these gears? If you guys run it in this gear, we'll just get rid of the derailleur and make these bikes, you know, kind of suited for hunters. Cause no company offers those bikes because they don't appeal to a wide variety of consumers where a lot of consumers outside of the hunting industry are interested in top end speed and being able to shift the gears and get some exercise where most of my clients are middle-aged men with money who aren't interested in, uh, in pedaling. So give them what yeah. they want, give them something that's not going to, break down and that's kind of where my company stealth hunting e-bikes was born that's awesome so I, I got some questions about that so for for one like um i've been scouting and uh, did some winter hunting in our pine barrens it's a state forest 
And um, I'm not sure exactly the regulations, but I don't think they allow e-bikes. Is there like a certain level or do you know anything about some of the regs or is, is it just a crapshoot? Every state's different, you so know, the, or what? So now we're going to get into the weeds here. Okay. So the federal classification for an e-bike, if it's 750 watts and low, mm-hmm. it's classified as a one, two or three e class e-bike. So okay. a class two e-bike is technically a bicycle by law where it's not considered an electric or a motorized vehicle. So the goofy things is the motors are programmable. So I sell a thousand watt mid drive, but if you go into the settings and you drop the max speed below 20 miles per hour, it's technically running at 750 Watts. Okay. Mechan- like the single speeds mechanically not even capable of it's seating 20 miles per hour and over 20 mile, miles per hour is a class three. So technically okay. 750 Watts traveling 16 miles per hour is a class two, but the goofy thing with the, the laws are poorly written. So as a state trooper, if I wrote you the ticket and for me to prove it in court, I would have to seize the bike and have an expert, testify as to how many watts it's running at which is never going to happen otherwise it'd be possible for me to win it in court like when i write somebody a speeding ticket there's there's case law that establishes the legitimacy of that ticket and i have to meet all these different elements of how i operated the radar and how the ticket was written to win that ticket so none of these cases with e-bikes had have made it very far there's a couple cases where like people have been caught with drugs or firearms that have gone in the criminal direction that might end up making it through the appeals process. But so far the courts have only made the rulings based on whether or not the bike had pedals and what the maximum speed was. Okay. So that's, so I didn't really answer your question, but like Baku, so Baku's been around forever. They have the exact same motor as I'm running. And on their website, they say that their bikes can either be a class three, two, or one based on if you go into the settings, drop the one. And then if you, if you detach the throttle, then it's technically a class one. So technically they're not motorized vehicles. So it'd be a, if, if a bicycle is allowed in the area you're talking about, then these shouldn't be allowed in the same area, but it'd be up to your local prosecutor. War. I mean, I could go out tomorrow and write a bunch of bad tickets. Like it, I can't, I can't guarantee what, what somebody else is going to, what somebody else is going to yeah. do based on their interpretation. So I'm, I'm on your, it's stealth hunting ebikes.com. That's your website. Correct. All right, I'm gonna I'm gonna share screen and and pull this up. I'm gonna try to see what happens. There was one similar company, so we'll see what it is. Should have a picture of me with a deer. See what happens. Yep, that's that's it. This you? Yeah, this is you here. And then these are, yeah, stealth bikes here. Different. Now are these all the all class two or 
I mean, they're all a thousand watt mid drives, but you can go into the settings and drop the watts. I got you. And the thing with dropping the watts is with that motor, you still get 160 newton meters of torque. Because probably half the bikes I sell to are guys who have 750 watt mid drive Rambos, which are less expensive, which is why they, they end up buying them. But those bikes don't have the the torque to climb hills because it's the it's the it's the low end torque that climbs the hill. Uh-huh. You need that 160 newton meters to you know once you get going where you're not going very fast and they're just going to start climbing up the hill. That that's how you climb the hills is with the the torque. But yeah, so those are the bikes, and then I just entered a partnership with another company that. They're fairly well known, which they're on that site too, was Frey. So I don't yeah. know if Frey makes the Baku Mule or if it's the exact same exact same bike. Like it has the exact same parts and everything. So then the bike I'm selling is like 3500 and then the Baku Mule is 5800 So, and I mean, it, yeah. the, if you look at the parts on a, on paper, it's the same parts. So, hmm. I mean, I'd be with how popular e-bikes are. I'd be really nervous if I owned one of those big companies. Cause I can't like, as soon as people wise up to, yeah, right. that you're not that you're paying $2,000 for a sticker. I don't know how they can. Well, they just need more people like you, right. To, to do the research, open up a company and, and, and build competition. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. So competition and, because the problem is, I mean, you could buy you can buy a really cheap e-bike, and either it's going to have a small motor, or it's going to have a cheap battery. And cheap batteries are extremely dangerous because those are the batteries that are starting on fire. They're not because the battery is a bunch of small batteries. It's basically like if you put lithium batteries in your trail camera, like it's not the exact thing, but it's basically a bunch of those connected in that battery. So if those if those are welded cheaply or configured purely poorly or the battery management system isn't very good, those are the batteries that are starting on fire and burning apartments. Char- yeah, they're charging them forever, and and then they're they're catching fire, right? The, like yeah, I heard about they, lithium batteries catching fire. Yeah. I like started unplugging all my stuff, man. So there, there's testing process, and I don't know the exact numbers, but it's like UL certification. So a battery and yeah. a bike that's passed that certification has gone where the batteries are load tested. They're tested for, you know, water resistance. They're tested with the, with the chargers where the chargers will shut off and where you can't overcharge them and where, where you're not going to have those kind types of problems. And then it's the same thing. The bikes are actually tested the same way where the bike's electrical system is is tested to withstand loads and different things i mean i have lists of what the tests are but yeah but those are just if you're gonna buy i could care less if anybody buys a bike for me but if you buy a bike you know do some research that if they're if you can find out if the battery's certified if the bikes you know you're always better with with a somewhat more reputable company than you know, you're obviously going to save money if you went through like Alibaba or something like that. But right, right. I mean, right. you're starting to you're starting to play with play with fire, and I think that's why 
to this point why people are so willing to pay the extra money for, you know, a, a big name fight just because they're kind of getting those insurances. But as more and more companies and competition, you know, people start to start to recognize that, you know, there's other smaller bike companies out there that are, that are putting, putting together quality products. Mm-hmm. Well, I think that, like when you, when you talk about a, a hunting bike built by a hunter, I mean, I think your accessories are probably catered, you know, a little closer to the lines of what a hunter actually needs to get back in there and, and, and to hold the equipment that he's going to have. I, I would assume that most, I went on your website a couple of different times to take a look at things. And it seems like they're well-designed for the hunter and, um, you know, the, the bags and, and, and whatnot are kind of designed for the things that you're going to need when you, when you go out in the woods. Is, is that correct? Yeah. I'm starting to get like some, uh, custom fabricated parts where I'm getting fabricated racks for the back. And, mm-hmm. and then, you know, I kind of looking at what parts are the most important for hunters and, and hunters are extremely hard on equipment. So you have, right. you have to look mm-hmm. at, you know, what, what are they going to do? And, you know, one of the things that, that I swap out on all my bikes is, is the headset, which is basically the front end. And anybody who's had a bike where there's, there's some play in the front handlebars into the bearing system in the front of the bike. That's the headset. And, and all these bikes coming from overseas have, have cheap headsets in them. So that's, mm-hmm. that's something that that's going to fail on a lot of, a lot of the cheaper bikes. So I'm putting the, the highest quality headsets in there from basically, you know, American, American bike racing companies where those guys are, doing jumps and doing all kinds of stuff and beating the bikes. But it's like the front end of your car. I mean, bike parts yeah. are going to wear out if you're really hard on them. And, you know, I'm trying to, I'm, I'm trying to provide the highest quality product for, for the money. So a, a lot of value for, for what you're, what you're spending. Cause the easiest thing for me would be to build an $8,000 bike. Like I could just put the best of the best on it, but, I mean, just build a tank. You could build a e-bike tank if you wanted to, but it would just be so ridiculously priced. Yeah, it's just too expensive. So I'm, I'm trying to find that sweet spot for, you know, where guys are getting value if they wanna like put high end. Because you could spend you could spend fifteen hundred dollars on a set of wheels on a bike, but I can't put those on the bikes to start just because the price gets too high. So, I mean, you get, you get a decent wheel set. If you pound the crap out of it, you might have to replace something, but mm-hmm. you know, you're getting, you're getting value to start off. And, you know, basically a lot of the, the part, a lot of the parts are exactly the same on a lot of the bikes. Like if you, if you tear apart one of those big name, big name bikes, I mean, if you look at the one spec sheet, I mean, it's the same, same brakes, same, yeah, same almost everything on the bike. It's just, I mean, a, a e-bike's just a collection of bike parts with a motor and a battery. So, and my my batteries are the exact same. Like my battery would fit in one of their bikes. The motors are made by one company. Bafang makes all the motors, so it's, it's the exact same motor, battery, and then just a collection of bike parts and most of the bike parts are exactly the same. That's mm-hmm. good. 
So what are some of the other things of, if somebody was investing in an e-bike, is there other things? I mean, obviously you probably need a, a pump for tires and, you know, what are some of the other things that are like necessities that you should get when, when you buy a bike? Yeah, you can do. So there's actually tire liners. So Tannis tire liners, I have a contract with them too, where that's uh it's a foam, it's a, a puncture resistant foam membrane kind of between the inner tube and the tire. So if you have something stick into the tire, it won't make its way to the inner tube. And then there's some flat out and stuff. So you can basically make it to the, make the tires to where they're, they won't go flat. And even if they do go flat with the Tannis, cause it's such a thick foam, you can mm -hmm. run the tire flat where you could, you can get back home. So, I mean, okay. the tire liners is the big thing. Cause you don't want to get a flat. You could keep a spare chain because that's – I've never broke a chain, but that's the one thing that, uh, you know, if you broke your chain with what – the mid-drives are just so much power that there there is a chance you can break a chain. But okay. typically if you're in the wrong gear trying to go up, grow up a hill – and all my bikes are geared to where they – I use the smallest front chain rings out of anybody. So a small front chain ring is basically a hill climbing gear. And what that does is it takes a lot of strain off the, the motor because you're not fo forcing the motor to work in a gear that would be a difficult pedaling gear if you're actually just pedaling the bike. So it's right. easier on the motor. It pulls less amps out of the battery for it to, it to work. So you get a better battery life and, and then it, reduces some of the wear and tear on your drivetrain. So just stuff like that to make the, the bikes last longer. But for, for in the field, I mean, they're pretty, I mean, they're pretty, pretty strong. I have one buddy who, who he, he bought a bike and he's a guy who can break anything. So, <laughs> so he pounded the crap out of the one bike. And, and uh, I mean, it was, he had a, his fair share of, of, you know, broken shifters and stuff. But I mean, the bike worked from the beginning of the season to the end of the season. And he was running it to, I think minus five in Nebraska. He ended up shooting a big 12 pointer using, using the bike just cause the bike. And you kind of asked me about what the, what the bikes open up for, uh, for hunters. And yeah. for me, it gives me access to areas. I otherwise wouldn't be motivated enough to access. And then it gives me the ability to hide my vehicle. So I will park my truck and, you know, even if, if I could park right by where I'm hunting, I won't do that. I'll park it a couple miles away, drive the bike in. Nobody has any idea where I'm at. They can't, you know, try to figure out what's going on from, from where my vehicle's parked. Cause I think we've all learned that if, you know, you could have a, awesome secret spot if you park there two days in a row you know the cat's out of the bag so just using the bikes even if you're just driving down the road using the bikes bikes kind of to throw people off and then you know if you're lucky enough to find areas where like up here a lot of the stuff's getting gated off where you can use the bikes but you're not supposed to drive vehicles or four-wheelers or anything like that so using the, the bikes to access further than uh you otherwise would be able to. Yeah. Yeah. That, that, that's awesome advantage, man, without a doubt. Very stealthy. Yeah, 
I can I can definitely see like um, uh, Dieter, you don't know I I've primarily hunted uh, private land, so this is really my first year on putting um, a lot of focus on on public, and uh, obviously going. I mean, the UP will be public, and then some, you know, other states and stuff like that. So, just as a total. Um, using an e-bike never really crossed, crossed my mind just cause I never had a, had a need for it. The, I can see the advantages of being able to get further. My, my question is like the maneuverability, like, are you taking this thing like through, through the woods? Like if, if it is big woods and, and kind of open, are you taking it through there? Um, you know, obviously you're not going to take it through a swamp or anything like that, but because my main thought is like, well, we have, we have all these, I mean, we have like access road access. And what you mentioned was a good one. You can only park at this gate, but then if you really want to get to where you got to, got to get to, you got a mile, mile and a half walk, you know? Um, and you'll say a half mile of it's going to be on a dirt road that only a tractor can drive down. Do you know, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. So are you, are you actually taking those into, into the woods and are they maneuverable like in that, in that fashion? And, so I, I drove mine through, through like a, a flooded swamp. It was like a foot of water with like waist high grass and stuff like that. So I, I was driving that, like <laughs> I was driving, it was a place that was, it's like, it was, a, it's an awesome spot. There's such a pain in the butt to hunt. And then just cause it was far to get there. And then once you got to the swampy grass so i could i was driving my bike within 100 yards of the tree okay i mean i hunted that place four days in a row and it was it was like a a dream you know (laughs) you don't even get sweaty you get an air-conditioned ride yeah (laughs) a lot of the guys a lot of the guys hunting like private like i had a guy who bought a bike for me shot a huge buck in illinois and it was one of those days he got off late work. He would have never hunted it, but he's like, I got the bike. You know, that'll get me, get me to my stand quick enough where I think I can, I think I can get a hunt in tonight. So yeah. he did it, drove his bike straight to the tree, shot the, shot the buck within five minutes of being there. Mm. He would have never hunted there without the bike. He would have never even tried it. And the deer, they'll really tolerate a lot with the bikes. Like for the most part, they'll, they'll just look at you and they won't, they won't spook. They, you know, they don't necessarily associate it with danger at this point. Right. Right. And a lot of guys are driving it. I don't know if I, I usually park mine probably a hundred yards away, but guys are driving right to the tree. And they're saying that as long as they, they lay it down it doesn't bother the deer. Like if it's, if it's upright, it freaks the deer out. Mm-hmm. But if they lay it down, then it's, it's no problem. So mm-hmm. a lot of private guys are using it cause you know, they can access diff- different parts of their farms where the four wheeler spooks the crap out of the deer, but the bikes, the bikes are quiet. And especially yeah. like with those single speeds I'm selling, so you don't get any of that chain rattle from the, from the derailleur mm-hmm. and the chain being loose and, and that, mm-hmm. and then, you know, you can drive through grass and crap and it's not snagging on the, 
right. derailleur. Hmm. So there, it's cool. They're, they're the that's, that's good anybody who's ever bought a bike and is a and is a uh, well put a cab ca- caveat and is a serious hunter will never go back to not using the bike because it exactly. opens up yeah. different worlds like so much so many more areas so many more tactics and like i would i can't even i can't even think of how my hunting strategy for next year would change if i didn't have the bike like it's all built right. around built around the advantages i can get from that bike because the deer I shot last year, I would have never shot without the bike. That huge triple bait one, I would have never shot without the bike. Yeah. I would have never got half the information I got last year without the bike, just checking trail cameras and stuff and doing different mm-hmm. things, you know, taking, you know, okay, I have, I just got out of the tree. I got 45 minutes before I have to really start thinking about getting into my evening set, hop on the bike run here, run there, check a couple cameras, check a couple areas to see if a scrape got opened up and just, just using them to get information. Cause I think we all know that information kills deer. The more information we have, right. Or we're going to be able to make the right decisions. And those bikes just, you know, unlock a lot of information that you just wouldn't have the time to get otherwise. That's yeah, really def- cool, man. I can definitely see the uh, advantage of, of time saving um, going in and coming out. Definitely see that. Hmm. Yep. All right. That's all. Well, Dieter, that is, that's a pretty good story. That's a, that's actually a really, really good background on you and you know, what led you into the e-bikes. And I, I think that people should go on, uh, you know, stealth custom e-bikes go on there check them out you know maybe go on uh either uh ranger matthews or your cochran or stealth e-bikes ranger matthews got shut down so when i was in kentucky last in september i was in like one of those public campgrounds or whatever with public wi-fi so my account act so then i had to prove my identity which is kind of hard to do when it's a fake So he he got shut he got shut down from Facebook. So then I had to start I had to start over completely with my real name in in September. And then the e-bike company I'd actually started under Ranger Matthews name and he was the the moderator for the the Facebook site or whatever. So I was locked out of that too. So the original company was stealth custom e-bikes and I had to change it because Ranger Matthews got shut down and I had to change stealth hunting e-bikes. So that's so, funny. So, it, so where is the best place to like to, to keep dibs on? You see how you do throughout the hunting season to check out the e-bikes. What, what is the best uh, platform? So on Facebook, I go under my real name, Dieter Cocken. And then okay. on Facebook's Facebook, it's Stealth Hunting E-Bikes. And then on Instagram, you can either search my name or I think I, I went, I'm at Ranger Matthews on Instagram as kind of a tribute to my old friend. But <laughs> he's on Instagram. And then I just started Stealth. I think it's at Stealth Hunting, which is at Stealth Hunting E-Bikes on Instagram. And then... Uh, the website is 
stealth hunting ebikes.com. And then yeah. if anybody wants to order bikes or questions, they can send me a message on Instagram or Facebook or give me a call just cause I, I recognize that it's a big investment. So I want people to get what they want. And then, you know, if stuff goes wrong, I'm going to take care of them. I had a guy last year whose battery fell off on his way to Kansas and I overnighted him a battery to where he was staying. Cause I mean, I hunt, I recognize guys got limited vacation. They need these bikes to work when they mm -hmm. need to work. So I'm going to help them any way I can. Yeah, that, that's huge too. If you're making that kind of an investment, um, obviously your, your stuff is a little more economical than, than some of the other brands out there, probably because of marketing and, uh, and all that kind of stuff that they're putting into their stuff. However, someone that actually has a bike background and you're going to be able to contact the guy that is making all the tweaks to the bikes before he sends them out and, and design the bikes and, and set them up. I mean, that's, that's huge. That's, that's like a, a true American, you know, down to earth mom and pop kind of, kind of uh support that you get from a good product. And that's what people I think want when, when they buy something that's, you know, and like you said, an investment, you know, yeah. And in, that's, that's huge Dieter. Yeah. Cause I, I mean, I build, build every bike. Like I, there's a lot of guys who are drop shipping bikes and doing different things, but every bike comes to me, comes out of the box, tear it apart, put it back together the way it needs to be. And, you know, so, I mean, it's kind of, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm building the bikes. Like I'm not just yeah. the in, in between guy who's directing the shipping company where it needs to go. So, so I know a lot about how they're, like you said, if stuff goes wrong, I've ripped them apart and I know what, know what's going on for the most part. That's awesome. John, we're at like 85 minutes, man. Why, yeah. why don't you, uh, why don't you uh, take fast. us out? Yeah, I will. Dieter, thanks so much for coming on, man. Hey. Was, uh, good meeting you. Yeah. Good, good learning from you. Um, yeah. So for, for everybody listening, rate the show, even if it's bad, give us, tell us why and tell us what we can do better. Um, so definitely leave comments and share it, share the show. And like we ask everybody to do, go read Genesis 27.3. And that's what it's all about. And until next time, Todd Dieter, we'll see y'all. Seek Wilderness. <laughs>